today changes my whole entire life. Welcome to Gridability, a podcast about perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I did it right this time. Last time I tried. Good job, bro. <laughs> Excellent job. George had to save me, but Adam's not able to come into the studio today, but I have an amazing guest here with me. Her name is Lauren Drain. This is our first time meeting. You got to take your foot off the pedal. Oh, no. I showed you the cough button. And now I'm stepping on it the whole time. Hi, thanks I for having me. Bro, this is great. This Why? Is great. So George messed me up. He might have helped you out, but he messed me up because oh, I, he told me to step on the I cough I showed you button. the new toy for the last thing, and you were like, oh, I want to play with it. It's okay, because last time I held in a cough, and I was choking. You know how it chokes you more? I'm yeah. choking, and I'm like trying to catch happen. my breath. I can't talk. It was terrible. So to, just so you guys know, there's a cough button. If you need to cough, you, you guys can't hear it. We can shut our mics. And so that's what we were practicing before we started. But anyway, back to the podcast and what we're going to talk I'm about. Here. I'm here. I'm <laughs> cough free right now. So we're good. <laughs> this is our first time meeting and I'm really excited to have this conversation. So it could be so authentic mm -hmm. on the podcast. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming in. So you have this amazing story and you have all of these accomplishments and these credentials, and I'm going to list some of them and I'm probably going to forget a lot of them because I'd rather not use my notes, but you are a fitness model, a bikini pro. Mm -hmm. You have over 5 million, am I right? 5 million social media followers. Yeah. Across the different platforms, 4 million on Instagram, uh, over a million on Facebook and That's things amazing. like that. I have a oh TikTok too. <laughs> a New York times bestseller. Yes. Registered nurse. Yes. Uh, what am I forgetting? Um, Tons. No, not a ton. Just like an online personal trainer. I, I have my own, like, I, I help train people online. So I have my own, like, fitness app and things like that. Okay. Um, now I have my own podcast. Yes. So I'm getting to podcasting, too. So it's called Triggered. It's on Spotify and um, YouTube. I was obsessed with it. I'm, like, yeah. stalking you yesterday. So I <laughs> learned your story. And it's amazing. Amber and I were just talking. We're like, for somebody that can do a podcast and your first one for an hour by yourself, amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So... So somebody looking at your story or just coming into your social media mm -hmm. could easily look at you and be like, oh, that was easy for her. She's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. She's got a body that deserves to be on cover of every fitness magazine, right? Oh, you're right? so sweet. I wish. And it's true. No, you're beautiful. But what we like to highlight on gridability mm -hmm. is the comeback story, right? And yeah. what made you so resilient? Because I know you have a lot of stuff in your past. We have a lot of similarities in our oh, past, actually. Yeah. Well, share, we can, share that with me. What do you think we have in common? I was raised in a religious cult myself. You were? Yeah. Which one? Uh, it's called People of Hope. Oh, okay. Have you heard of it? I haven't. But okay. most people haven't because it was a small little community. They yeah. called it the community yeah. in Jersey. Yeah. And I, I could tell you more about that later. I was a little bit younger. Okay. So when my parents got out of the cult, I was only 13 and they got out of it with us. So okay. I wasn't excommunicated from my family. I'm kind of giving away your story. Wait, say that one more time. So they got out before they got you out did? with us. Oh, so with you. Okay. I wasn't separated from them. Okay. I didn't have to overcome that. Okay. So I don't, do you want to start there since we kind of sure, opened we can. that up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. So um, my, the book that I wrote, it's a memoir. It's called Banished, Surviving My Years in the Westboro Baptist Church. So if you've heard of that church, it's very infamous. Um, basically, they protest a lot of, heinous things, churches, military, like you name it. God hates this. God hates that. Like it was just very infamous years ago, uh, right after September 11th and that whole time frame. So 
I, I wasn't actually born into it. I was brought into it when I was 14. So very formative years. You're already very confused about your identity and who you are and what life is like and what you're into. And I was thrust from like kind of an average normal life to now you're, you're going into strict cult life. So I basically all of a sudden, I couldn't dye my hair. I couldn't cut my hair. I couldn't wear certain clothes. I couldn't paint my nails. I couldn't talk to boys. Like I had previously had boyfriends and now I can't have a boyfriend uh, super strict rules. And so it was, it was a pretty intense cult life. My, you know, my parents brought me there. I had a younger sister who was five years younger. And then my parents ended up having two other younger kids when I was there. So it was just like no dating, um, lots of, I don't know, like shaming of certain sins and certain behaviors are openly publicly humiliated. So anything I did wrong or perceived wrong was like blasted on email, um, shamed and like, punished so we would get like openly punished by all the other members of the church we could be scolded by other members of the church so even though how you have your parents who are pretty intense with their rule holding and making and um you know the punishments then we would also get it from everyone else so if, if it's a community of about 70 people uh five core families from like grandparents down um then you're getting a lot of like i don't know scrutiny it's a kind of a gang mentality like now from the outside looking in after the fact, it feels very gang-like mentality, but when I was in it, I was so young and impressionable and vulnerable, and I really, really wanted to make my parents happy and proud, and I actually do really believe in God, and it was it was ironic because at the time, I found God, but like in a weird cult, so it was like, there's weird rules that didn't seem to add up with everything I was reading in the Bible, and then it was like, but I believe in God, and I feel this strong connection to my faith, and that's really, so I just kind of assimilated to whatever they were telling me, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I was there until I was 21 um, when I got kicked out for talking to a boy that the church basically said you're not allowed to because they have to all agree on who you can uh, court. And it's it's a very like, if they don't agree or think that person's a believer, then they'll, be, they'll shun you and shame you. And so, yeah, it's pretty intense. And I was there during like very formative years from 14 to 21. So your adolescent years, you're just trying to figure life out and figure out what you think, what you believe, and still try to live under your parents' roof. And so, yeah. yeah it's yeah. hard. So many similarities. Yeah. Um, and a selfish question before we move on. Okay. No, I we heard don't... you say. Yes. I heard you say on your podcast how when you left, uh -huh. you wanted to make sure you kept your faith in God. Yes. And that meant a lot to you. Yes. For me, I did the whole like rebellious thing afterwards, uh -huh. you know, same thing, couldn't date, couldn't be around boys, couldn't wear certain things, very, very similar. Oh, wow. So went to college, you know, did the drinking and the drugs and the boys and all that yeah. stuff, right? And when I came back, I'm like, okay, that left me nowhere mm -hmm. other than kind of with hangovers and <laughs> a lot of regret. My dignity is, you know, still somewhere in North Fun Carolina. Fun stories. But, and... mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So, and then like, as we moved out here, like that's years and years and years ago, but we started developing... Adam and I, business mm -hmm. relationships with people who are very heavily into their churches, which I don't hold anything against that. Mm -hmm. I do believe in God in my own way. Yes. But multiple uh -huh. different people who don't know each other uh -huh. would tell us like, well, God told me to do this. And then they would do these horrible things. And they would use God telling them to do that to manipulate you. Oh, so I started developing this really, really bad taste in my mouth because of the scars that I already had yeah. and the trauma. Uh -huh. So just curious from your perspective as somebody who was able to not have that like work against you and yeah. still keep your faith in God? How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember um, when I got kicked out, so I didn't actually leave. I was kicked out against my will, which really, that's why I ended up getting, developing mental health problems, which I talk about on my podcast. I ended up developing P PTSD, complex PTSD and some other issues 
later on they surfaced, not right away. But basically, I, I got kicked out against my will. So I was ready and willing and able to like listen to like whatever they had to tell me and prove that I, I love God, I love my family, I, you know, I'm whatever. I wanted to stay with my family. So that was a challenge. That was very challenging for me. But um, as far as like how you d distinguish between your faith in God and it, it's people, you know, these are people's opinions. Religion and church and traditions—they're all people. They're what people decide that God thinks they're what people decide the tradition should be, how you should behave, who you are, what your heart is. And at the end of the day, no human can see your heart. Mm -hmm. They can assume what they think you are, but only God can see your heart. So the way I look at it is these people, they develop these rules and regulations and punishments and humiliations to kind of like, maybe originally it was to kind of keep everyone in line or maybe like to make sure they don't sin too far or get caught up in problems. Cause you know, obviously any, going off the path can get, can lead you to problems, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever, you know, so maybe it had good intentions, but trying to control people, I don't think that's what really God wanted us to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have, it's almost like we have like laws to help us understand that if you go too far in any direction, any extreme can lead to problems. I mean, we just know that from life experience. So I think it's more about that. And I think the, the many, many churches are a social gathering to kind of feel godly or feel like self-righteous or something like that. And they end up using the rules and however they perceive the right way to live you know, to control people. And I think that we all should be able to like kind of interpret things how we think and have our own, like you said, personal relationship with God. Like I literally don't go to church anymore. I mean, I will occasionally, but I don't need to be approved by everyone. Like that's not, to me, that's not what justifies who, who I am as a good person. Like I have my own conscience. I have my own, you know, prayers or beliefs and I, I just practice them on my own. And I think that anytime we start getting caught up in just whatever, but all the people think we get, we lose sight of what God really is. Like having a good heart, having a good conscience, doing right to people, treating them the way you'd want to be treated, you know? So I had to learn the very, very hard way that even if people say they're of God or they, you know, that I shouldn't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Maybe they had good intentions, maybe not. Maybe they got way off track but I still know there's something to this. Like when I left, I had no one. Like my mom, my dad, my sister was my best friend. I had best friends at school, my neighbors, everyone I knew and loved for the last seven years cut me off. Like wouldn't talk to me on the phone, wouldn't, wouldn't answer my texts, like ghosted me and wouldn't let me talk to them. I couldn't come to their house. It went from flip-flop. Like it went from like we're best friends all day, every day that we hang out all the time to we completely cut you off. We're going to shame you. We're going to humiliate you. We're going to kind of like snicker and make fun of you as if like you're, you're demonic or you're satanic. So it was very bully meant like the way I was treated was very bully, you know, and I struggled really hard with that. But like I said, I remember praying the first day that I got kicked out. I was at a hotel room and I was like, just God, just show me the path I'm supposed to be on. Show me where I'm supposed to be. Show me where I need to go. If there's some other way. And if this is not the place, then I'll go do the right thing somewhere else, you know? So I just remember having that prayer and, and because I had no other support system, I think that's what made me hold on to faith so strongly because I knew I had to get through. I knew I had to survive this. Like I, depression was going to take a hold of me. Suicidal thoughts were going to take a hold of me. Like I needed faith to get me through and it got me through such a hard time. Like the first six months were incredibly hard to go from everyone to no one. Um, to go from like having a somewhat of a social life, at least within the church to you work, you work and that's it. Like I would go clock in and out of the hospital, my nursing shift, and I would come home depressed because I couldn't talk to anyone. And I even kept reaching out to my family at the time. Like I would call my dad, I would call my mom, I would text them, even my sister. My sister actually ironically worked across the street from where my really shitty ghetto apartment was 
is like crack house central is like $500 a month for a furnished place in a shitty part of town. But my sister worked at the Dairy Queen right across the street. She was five years younger, but we were best friends. And I kept thinking like, I want to go across the street and talk to her and check on her and see her. But this was against the rules, right? So I was so controlled. I was so brainwashed at the time that to believe to obey, like you're supposed to follow rules, obey, obey, obey. And like, so I was drilled into me that if you disobey our rules, you can't get back in. So I was still thinking I could get back in. Wow. And I wasn't even like, it wasn't about the religion. I actually had fought a lot of our principles. Like while I was there, I was challenging a lot of our beliefs. Like why God doesn't hate, you know, these people, God doesn't laugh when people when they're in tragedy. Like I was challenging some serious beliefs that we had based upon Bible. Cause the thing is they taught me Bible every day for seven years. So I became kind of like a Bible scholar and I understood. So I would question our, our beliefs and strategies and how we treated other people, judging people and such. And they didn't like that. So I think part of the reason I got kicked out so quickly is because they made an example of if you ask questions and you fight the system, sure. you fight, then you're getting kicked out. So I, but anyways, after I got kicked out, I was still in this crazy brainwashed mentality of you need to obey even when I'm out, which is crazy. They still had mind control over me. And I didn't see my sister right across the street from me. Every mm. single day I could have walked to Dairy Queen and said, Hey, Hey, I miss you. Like, how are you doing? Uh, whatever. And, um, it's just crazy how much control like if if you're if you're in a place like a cult how much control it has over your mind and behavior and the programming for a really long time even when you're challenging it even when you're starting to not believe certain things it, it takes a while to deprogram yourself and so i just feel like i wish i would have done that that's one of my biggest regrets is i never went to my sister and saw her and i didn't have at that time i don't think i had the strength or the know-how or like i'm a i'm a very curious person now and i'm very much i'll go after what i want I reach out to people no matter what, if we have a conflict, I'm, I'm always like trying again and, and doing my best. But in that moment, I was just very discouraged. Yeah. And it was all about the obey mindset that I still had in my brain, thinking yeah. that maybe I could get back with my family. Because at that point, it was all about losing my family. It wasn't so much that I wanted to be in that religion. I thought there was a lot of messed up things about <laughs> religion. So do you, do you have a relationship with your family now? Ironically, I do. I, I haven't even t shared this on my podcast yet, um, but I, they did come back into my life in August of 2020 and during, uh, during COVID, actually. I found out, because I actually have a few friends that have left the same cult and we've remained in, in, close, in close contact, um, that my family left. My dad, my mom, my sp little brother and little sister. Although my sister that I was telling you about, she's five years younger, she's still in it. She was married into it and she has kids and everything. So it's a lot, it would obviously be a lot more challenging for her. Um, so yeah, my parents left and it was like, I'm not going to tell their whole story. Uh, cause like I said, I haven't revealed that yet. Uh, they wanted to keep it a little bit calm and private cause they're still, um, they were still kind of recovering from leaving. Um, but I will say that I'm very proud of them. Um, they, my dad was in it for 20, my dad and my mom were in it for 20 years. I guess my siblings were too, because they were born into it. Yeah. So, and I, I was in it for like, what was that? 14, seven to 14 years. Okay. So they, they left like five or six years after I left. Is that right? Yeah. No, it's gotta be longer than that. Well, I, I was separated from them for 15 years. So is that correct? Why am I doing the math wrong? Okay. I hadn't seen them in 15 years. Yeah. So they came out in 2020. I left in 2000. 2000. I, I'm not doing my math this morning. That's okay. 2007. 
I wouldn't follow. I can't do math to be it is, it was, Yeah. So it was, it was a long time. I hadn't seen him in 14 years. So anyways, we reconnected in March of this past year. Um, so my little siblings were three and five when I saw them last. They were like 20 and 22 when I saw them. So yeah, big time gap. I, I, I missed their whole childhood. I missed being an older sister. I missed the bonding experience. And the thing is, I actually really enjoyed being an older sister. It was like one of my favorite things about being in the church. You had several roles there. You know, um, one of the roles is kind of like a caretaker. The older siblings take care of the younger kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was kind of like a second mother. So I was with them since they were babies and they were only two years apart. So me and my sister Taylor, we would take care of Bo and Faith. I was 19. I was 16 when my mom had my brother Bo and 19 when my mom had my sister Faith. So we were very, very, like it was a huge gap. Like I was a mom figure. So that was really a big struggle for me when I lost them because I was so close in that way. Um, and I really valued that role, the older sister role. So it was very challenging for me to go from being an older sister of three to none and to be a daughter to not being a daughter, you know. Um, so I, I experienced a lot of loss at once. And uh, yeah, that's been very challenging. So we, we did re rekindle and it's it's amazing seeing them be like these amazing humans that somehow also escaped a, a, a different, like a different scenario, but a similar situation and that they're still not damaged. Like yeah. I, I don't, it seems like they're very well adjusted. They're very like intelligent. They're very kind. They're, you know, so it's really cool to see that because what happened to me damaged me pretty sure. severely. <laughs> so I'm still recovering. I'm 37. I've been out since I was 20, 21 going on 22. And most of my mental health crises were came up when I was like 35 midlife. Uh, I had some break mental health breakdowns. And, uh, after I became a mother, I struggled too. Um, yeah, I had, I, I actually was at 2020 and 2021. I had some severe mental health crisis where I had to like really take my mental health seriously and, uh, do some d deep digging in my inner work and in trauma work and stuff like that. So I'm very proud of like that journey that I've been on. And that's kind of why I started the podcast triggered because um, I was very triggered and that was what was going on with me. I, I ended up developing com complex PTSD that I was diagnosed with and uh, all these things were surfacing. I had to start to do some digging and find out where it came from. I actually did hypnotherapy. I did some EMDR work. Um, EMDR work for anyone who doesn't know, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. It's basically where you kind of you're kind of in a hypnotic state and you you access whatever you're going through. It might be anxiety, it might be sadness, it might be anger, and you okay where where in my life am I feeling that now? And then you close your eyes and you go to the last mem the first memory of when that first intensified, and you're able to access these traumatic memories and you're able to process them, neutralize them and purge them. So it, at the end of these sessions, um, it can be very intense because you're kind of re exposing yourself to trauma. So at first you might feel super overwhelmed. You might be flooded with emotion. You might start spontaneously crying or screaming or yelling or being angry for a while. You might feel exhausted because the trauma was trapped in your body. Um, but it's very effective at purging it. Like you don't realize you've been carrying trauma in your body for years. You've been carrying pain in your body for years. And so as discouraging as it was in the beginning, like, why am I having panic attacks? Why am I, I can't pick up my daughter. Why am I like losing weight? Like, why am I feeling suicidal? Like all these feelings, um, as I started to do these different therapies and modalities to heal myself, I started seeing the benefits. Like I was 
less triggerable. I was less angry. I was less anxious. Things that used to trigger me are trigger me a lot less now. If I had a 10 out of 10 chest pain, when you would say this, now I only have a three or a two. So I started seeing the progress and I finally felt like, oh my God, this is amazing. Cause in, um, in nursing, in my nursing background, I was a nurse, uh, actively practicing for 10 years. And when we learned about mental health in my mental health rotation, they were basically telling us that PTSD is non-treatable and non-curable back when I was in school. So I would, I actually had a couple of PTSD patients on some of my rotations and we were just drugging them up. We were just giving them Xanax or whatever drug to make them feel calm. Sometimes they were allowed to like smoke or do whatever to ease their anxiety. And I was just like, are we really just slapping band-aids on these people and not helping them with their severe trauma and these elicit these uh, crazy PTSD reactions that they're having, we have nothing to help them with. So just in my lifetime, from the time I was in school in my 20s to now, like I'm 35, we we are, have huge modalities, EMDR, hypnotherapy, ayahuasca, plant medicines, like there's all kinds of ways to help heal these, these things. Cause it's not, you have to go to the wound, right? So yeah. you have to dig down and some people don't even know what their wounds are. Like when I've been going, when I went to ayahuasca and some of these plant medicine ceremonies, some people are coming there to maybe to heal addictions, uh, traumas. They might even not know what's wrong with them. They're just like, I go from relationship to relationship. I can't hold anything down. I, I push people away or I have these weird coping mechanisms. So, um, and then they do the therapy, they do the uh, ayahuasca or the plant medicine and they see what their trauma was and they're able to make peace with it. Like they're able to purge it. They're able to release it from their body. They're able to feel love again. They're able to feel self-love or they're able to maybe, um, forgive someone if they needed to forgive someone. Um, it's very healing. I went, I went to a, I went to ayahuasca a retreat with 90 people in the room, all different walks of life, all different ages, all different backgrounds, all different problems. And we all took the same medicine. We take the same cup of medicine, no, like pretty much the same dose, same medicine for every other, every type of issue, sexual trauma, addiction, because at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're opening up your psyche to help you purge trauma and pain. Cause what we end up doing is we, we get, we get these armors up, right? The armor might be, I push people away. The armor might be, I I develop PTSD. Armor might be all these different things and coping mechanisms. I, I, I'm addicted to something because I'm so broken inside. And I, I witnessed firsthand people healing the most wide range of issues, people healing from death trauma, people healing from sexual trauma, people healing from all, like their whole life, they didn't know what was wrong with them, healing from addictions pretty quickly in one or two or five, four ceremonies. So That's incredible. Yeah. So that was part of my journey. It was pretty intense. I actually talk about my ayahuasca journey uh, in a whole episode. I talk about it. I posted some stuff up on YouTube because it is a very intense medicine. You have to know what you're doing to go into it. And um, it is going to be emotional and it's going to be mental and it's even going to be physical. You feel physical sensations running through your body. Um, but yeah, it's a psychedelic. So use it your discretion, all that's jazz. But yeah, that's, that's something I've had to do the last three years. The last three years I've been on a pretty big mental health, personal development, healing mind, body, spirit journey. Um, because it, what I'm learning is with trauma, you're not responsible for it, but you are at some point accountable. Like as an adult, you have to make sure you don't pass it on to your husband, your friends, your sister, your children, and that it really will perpetuate no matter how much you don't want it to and how much you're shameful of whatever it is that's going on. Um, it's like subconscious and it will project out. Like if it's, it'll be in there. So 
that's something I had to learn is that like as much as I despise certain behaviors that I have when I'm triggered, um, I have to do the work and the work is not easy and you feel like it's unfair and you get pissed off because you're like, someone gave this to me, this circumstance gave it to me. And at some point you want to give up because you're like, I'm re-traumatizing myself and I feel like crap now all day long after these. <laughs> and, um, and then you see the light and you get a little uh, uplifted when you start to feel it this weight come off your chest and you do experience that. So it's, it's a struggle cause apparently it's going to be a lifelong battle for me, but I, in three years, I can tell you I'm a completely different person and I'm a very self-aware. Um, I feel like I can honestly say my daughter, I think I can make sure my daughter doesn't ever have to deal with this. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So yeah. So where did fitness fall in? Did this come in during the healing process that you're talking about? Um, that's a good question. So my fitness journey, I was about 28 when I started to take like the gym seriously and to go into the competing world. And I got kind of, I like saw this girl with abs on Instagram, like, I want to look like that. And I had no idea. I would just do random stuff. Before that, I would go to do Stairmaster for 20 minutes and like three crunches or something. Yep. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, oh, I'm at the gym. And then I hired a coach and I, I started doing it. So at first it was like a very aesthetic thing. Like I want to be in the best shape of my life. Like I'm 28, you know, and I want to, and I saw this inspo pick and I'm like, oh, how do I get like that? And then she said in her, in her caption, it was something like, you can get this in eight or 12 weeks. I'm like, what the heck? That's insane. And I signed up for a program, got a coach. It was the whole diet, you know, your typical body bodybuilding diet. It was like rice, you know, broccoli and chicken and, you know, boring stuff at first. And I got an insane shape in 12 weeks, like insane. Like I had always been kind of like, you know, like skinny fat, like I never had abs, but I always felt like I had a flat tummy and, you know, I, whatever, but I just went and just proved to myself, you can literally transform your body really fast and really well. And I became addicted to that process. So like I said, at first it was very, it was very aesthetic. And then I fell in love with the process and what it did for my mind and body. And I felt for once in my life, so in control of my life. Like this is one, there's a lot of things I couldn't control at that time. Not see my mom, not see my dad, not see my siblings, not knowing where my life's going, but I, I can control how I look and feel, how strong I am. Um, I can have a competitive edge. Like it just felt like it was filling a lot of uh, holes for me. And, um, and I just felt this new sense of like strength and energy and power. I felt empowered. Um, I felt very confident. I think it was the first time I ever had really good, decent or really improving self-confidence and self-worth. Um, so it, it was, it was very therapeutic in that ma manner. I don't think I was, I, at that point I was still unconscious that I had any mental health things to work through. Um, so I, I gravitated towards it knowing this just makes me feel so good. This makes me feel energized. This makes me feel, like I said, good self-esteem. And then I caught the bug. I started competing and it was all downhill from there. I mean, I, mean, I literally uh, was working actively full-time nursing at two different hospitals, still competing, still going to the gym every day. And I was like, this is my lifestyle. Like this is, I pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this rest of my life. And still to this day, I'm 37 and I gym like working out is a huge, huge part of my, of my modality to heal and to, you know, have therapy. And I'm aware now that it does affect my mental and mood, mood stability. So if I go off and I, I can't work out for a while, whether it's like something in life with my daughter travel, I instantly need to get back to the gym and the gym will release a lot of pent up energy and it will release anxiety, frustration, even depression. Like when I'm depressed, 
obviously you don't feel like getting up out of bed and it's like the last thing you think you want to do. But as soon as you push yourself, it moves the chemicals around in your body and your serotonin starts to move up. And it really does positively influence you to get out of depression. Like, you know, so yeah, it's absolutely central to my healing. It's central to my life. It started aesthetic and now it's like everything else. Yeah. Oh, I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. And I used to say when I was competing in fitness, people would be like, how could you do it? Because I was the same way. Old school bodybuilders, chicken and rice, no <laughs> water for three days, you know, the whole uh -huh. thing. Yeah. And I'd be like, because I'm really good at suffering because of my past. Oh, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that's like a terrible way to look that's at it. And to this day, I have to stop myself from being like, oh, I, I can handle this. I'm yeah. gritty. I know how to suffer. Yeah. And Adam and I came up with this thing, like no more un unnecessary suffering because yeah. we put ourselves through those things. Right. Not only like physically. Yeah. But also it gets a little bit, you know, crazy. Yeah, it does. A little bit. Obsessive, so, yeah. Yeah. So looking back on your whole life mm -hmm. and where you are now and where you came from, mm -hmm. would you exchange it if you could? Would you take it um, back? In a lot of ways, no, because it, I am who I am because of it, for sure. I mean, I, th I think I have such a unique perspective and for, I do actually really believe, if we want to get on a spiritual level, I believe in spiritual things too. I, yeah. I, I think it, ha it needed to happen to me for a reason. I needed to be propelled into a huge growth phase. I needed to know spiritually I can overcome anything. Because looking back now, in the moments I feel super duper weak and low, I remember what I did. I'm like, I can literally do, I mean, not to be bragged, but I can do anything. Yeah. Like I can overcome even these small obstacles. And so it made me who I am. It made, it made me empathetic with people. I, I am very connected to people who've been through struggle and overcome things, obviously with your husband. Um, I connect so strongly to that. Like I don't, I don't connect on surface levels with people. Sure. I won't do that. It, I don't care how pretty, popular, whatever you are, like you're boring to me unless you have maybe grit, grit ability. Yep. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I wouldn't take it away. It, it's, I think God had a purpose for me. I think the universe had a purpose for me. And now I'm where I'm at now. Like how would I influence people to get fit? How would I have, I, I literally went from my nursing following to telling people you can, you can take your life back with fitness. I've gotten people off blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, you name it. And people are overcoming their anxiety, this, that eating disorders, all because I decided to to make this a, a career and, and, and I started to be outspoken about it, a public figure about it. I really believe this is good for your health. So, and I wouldn't have gone on my mental health journey if I didn't have a mental health crisis. So yeah, a blessing in disguise, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to like re go into it, but <laughs> I, 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 I really value it now. Like I can, I'm on the other side of it. I'm not yeah. in the thick of the pain so I can value it. And, um, yeah, it's a weird blessing in disguise. Yeah, I get it. And I think like in ways where you were talking about your little sisters and how you were kind of groomed to be a maternal figure, like I feel like I was the same way really? and it helped me become a better mother. I yes. feel like in a crazy way. Yeah. You feel the same? Yeah. It, yeah. It, I mean, I felt like a second mom. I, yeah. I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time of the loss. And apparently I, I experienced loss as if you literally lose a child yeah. like that's that's how I went through the same devastating emotions sure. and the grief process and that's before I've even ever knew what grief was because I had to grieve recently my my brother-in-law passed during um COVID so oh, I, it was sorry. yeah it was very but that was like an actual death loss and I was like wow these are all very similar emotions that I the extremes of the, the depth of the emotion, the depth of like the anger, the depth of the sadness, the depth of the pain of loss. And I lost all family members at once and for an unlimited amount of time. And I think this goes to what maybe you, I, you can connect with me. You, you knew you had an unlimited future. 
yeah. uh, with, yep. with Adam. So you had to, it's a weird grief because you don't know. It's an unknown. Am I ever going to see him? Am I ever going to get him back? This is what I thought with my family. Am I ever going to see them? Am I ever going to get them back? And what hoops do I go through? How much am I forcing something versus it's, it's meant to be? Like, that's a weird thing too. Cause like, I remember there was one time and this is, this is going to sound crazy. Cause you will go to, when you're grieving, your brain goes to really crazy places. Yeah. I, and, um, especially when it's not an actual death loss, it's just a loss of like physical interaction. Um, your brain will come up with weird solutions. And my brain decided to look up the laws in my, (laughs) my parents live, my parents and family lived in Kansas at the time. And they have this law about, um, sibling, um, so when you have a divorce, it's a parental custody, there's sibling custody. So I looked this up and I was doing the research and I was like, man, I actually have a case if I wanted to get my siblings back. And, uh, I thought about all the pro I wrote down all the pros and cons. I didn't really go to like seek legal counsel, but I had it in my mind. Like this is what I could do. It's my right. They shouldn't be able to take them from me. They're stealing all my years. They're stealing my whole life. They're stealing my identity. And I was just like, man, I can't do this. These are children. They don't understand whether what part they're part of. They don't understand where I'm coming from. They're going to, they're going to make me look like the evil bad guy. And here I am coming with a legal team and like, what's my motive? I was like, I can't do this to children. Like, it's just not fair. Like I'll pray on it. I'll pray on it. If something, you know, comes to me, but I do remember like thinking some really bizarre things. I remember thinking coming to the church, like when I was an out, I like, I would like come to the church and sneak in or get them. Like I had the weirdest ideas because I'm just like how this is an unfair scenario. I feel completely wronged. Um, I want to fix it. And I have such, I'm such a passionate person. I, you clearly are too. Like, you're like, I'm going to go to the end of the earth to get this yep. with Adam. You clearly did. Yep. And I'm, I'm, if I have the energy and I have the passion, I have the spirit, then not, not like everything else is just a barrier. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, what do I do with this passion? I can't do anything. There's nothing to do, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I mean? Like we have so much energy inside and like, you don't know where to put it that's how I felt for a while. So I had to kind of distract myself out of it because I didn't have a a roadmap. I didn't have a strategy to get them back. So maybe you can share that with you because you clearly had to deal with like the unknown of like, am I going to ever see this guy? Am am I putting all my eggs in this basket and it's never going to come to fruition? Yeah. And it, Adam uses this, um, this line where he's like, you know, you don't realize unless you're actually in that situation, what you would do. You think, you know what you would do. Like, Oh, if I was given a life sentence, I'd kill myself because that's the easy way. Right. I'm not going to sit in jail for the rest of my life yeah. until you're there. Yeah. Right. And kind of similar, yeah. like with your story, that's where the glimmers of hope and really having to like grip and get mm-hmm. gritty mm-hmm. to get yourself out of it or come up with the solutions mm-hmm. versus like, Oh, my life is great right now. I have hope for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When your yeah. life is going perfect, of course, you're yeah. going to keep hope alive and all that stuff. Yeah. And for me, when it got really bad, I had my fitness to rely on. Okay. I had things that I had set in place because like when I, or he was telling you about his clemency. Yeah. And that was, um, the hardest part of our relationship minus the last two weeks before he got out. That was the closest I came to breaking up with him. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because it was the most traumatic yeah, of our of relationship, course. but minus that four years before was when he was up for clemency. Yeah. And I remember I was, they denied it. So I get word the night before yeah. Trump is sworn in Yeah. that um, 
it was his petition was on the vice president's desk and yeah. it's just it's gonna happen and it was yeah. this guy that was very religious pray with me uh-huh. i prayed with him blah 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 so the next morning uh-huh. i'm at a doctor's appointment yeah and the girls behind the front desk they were adorable and i loved going in and like chit-chatting with them uh-huh. so the inauguration's on the tv and i'm chit-chatting with them they're talking about like what everyone's wearing. Look how cute her dress is. Look how cute that one is. And I'm trying to like keep my composure right. because as it's happening, his petition's not getting signed. Right, right, right. Right. So my whole life is crumbling, but I'm trying to just play it off. I can't tell these people what's going on yeah, in my life, right? Not. So it's going on and I'm fighting back tears and I somehow get through it and I get in my car and I just start sobbing because mm-hmm. I'm like, it's over. Yep. Right. So then it was over in that moment. And that lasted about six weeks where like I would just spontaneously break out into tears. I would be sitting at my desk at work. I couldn't talk about my relationship at work because I knew people who got fired, whose husbands were in prison. They got fired for other things, you know, because you can't get fired because somebody finds out their husband's in prison. So I kept that quiet. I needed my job to afford to be able to go to visit and take the days off and blah, blah, blah. So gave myself those it shouldn't usually take six weeks. Usually I gave myself like 24 hours and then I could grieve. I could, you know, grovel. I could take off of work. I could eat shit. I could watch Netflix, yeah. whatever I wanted to do. And yeah. then I told myself, and this is what I always told the community I, of women I built. You got 24 hours, grovel, feel it. Cause you don't want to bottle those and push those right. down. Those That's emotions. True. Yeah. And then you have to put on your big girl pants and yep. you have to go through life. doesn't mean the sun's going to come out, but yeah. it means like Go to work. You gave yourself 24 hours? I gave myself 24 hours to grieve. Uh And then I just had to go through the motions of life. I had to go back to work. I had to go to the gym. I had my little things that I did every day. It was very routine back then. And then then what was the time frame between that moment and then then the actual release? So that was four years. You had four. four, So from there, you were able to put in four more years? Four more years. It was tough. And and it was just kind of like those, like you were saying, like those glimmers of hope, right? And I would reassess every day. Is this something I want to continue to fight for? Yeah. Or is it time to let it go? Was there an immediate strategy after the clemency issue and him getting denied? There was no immediate strategy? That was our moonshot. That was our last hope, it felt like. And then Adam was always better than me at like, okay, let's Uh redirect. Let's figure something else out. And I'm like, there's nothing. Oh my God. And then we would have to So he had to be the strong one behind bars. Behind bars. (laughs) Yeah. I'm out here like, oh, my life's over. Yeah, <laughs> he's stuck there oh forever. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so did your your mind? Did your mind re? Did your mind shift to, okay, now I'm gonna kind of like block out that that reality and just kind of live my life with him for a little while until we figure out something else. Well, how did your mind shift? Because if you go from yeah. hope to no hope, there's got to be a shift. And yeah. So. I had to reassess and yeah. say, like, is this something I want to continue to fight for or not? Yeah. And I remember during that time when my girlfriend was like, listen, Ro, like, I genuinely have faith he's going to come home one day. Who knows when that's going to be? But what if right now you just live your life like he's not coming home? Mm-hmm. So this way you don't have the ups and the downs. Okay. I tried it for like 25 seconds. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't because if I do, uh-huh. then I have nothing to fight for. I was too far you deep at that point. You were super yeah. invested. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I can't. And then we would just like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to focus on now. And we'll try to get the law changed. And I connected with his attorney and you heard the whole story, but yeah, it took four years wow. from that, that point. What is it that kept, I mean, obviously you had an awesome connection, deep, super deep connection. Um, but did you, it was like a full blown love affair. Like you were able to like yeah. hug and kiss when you saw each other and stuff like that. Just hug and kiss once at the beginning of visit, once at the end of visit. And okay. if it was too long, they would like shame you from across the room. Closet too long. <laughs> and I would be like mortified. Oh God. Yeah. You're like in high school having teachers oh like God. yell at you. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Wow. You've been through it, man. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So that, I mean, that makes sense. It's good to see that like mind shift, but yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. So I think you having to go through the, the, the length and duration of this is what gives you so much grit and strength. Absolutely. And me too. Like I, if it was only a couple of years, I wouldn't be that like passionate. I wouldn't be that 
like patient. I wouldn't be that, I don't know, whatever it is, you know? Um, and so, and I really did believe each moment when each year passes, I just thought it was forever. I didn't know it was just right. 15 years. I thought, okay, it's, it's forever. Like I just need to go one more year. Um, so it's crazy how your mind, and then when they come out and you see someone, you're like, oh, this is it. Like what? Yeah. Like, it's very weird. It's like the most blindsided, dissociated antic. For me, it was anticlimactic. I mean, for you guys, it was climatic. But for me, because <laughs> I saw my family and they weren't yearning for me like I was yearning for them. Yeah. So it was a little bit different. But um, but I and I had to romanticize it so big in yeah. my head. I like made all these fantasies about it. Yep. And none of them are true for me anyway. Yeah. I know you guys had plans so that you were able we to. We had plans, but I could tell you this. I dreamt of that day that he was released so many times. I'm like, Kim Kardashian, ugly crying. <laughs> it's beautiful. I fall into his arms. It was nothing like that. It was so stressful. It was and yeah, you guys were like a, all a nervous. Yeah, he told me how like so you, you stepped outside the prison. Like, do we take a picture? Do we take it a video? It was so weird. And get this. So I'd be like so anxious. Like, get me out of this place. <laughs> I was, right? So two weeks before this happens, there was a guy named Chad who was in Adam's same shoes. Like very similar laws, life sentence, da, da, da. He gets his release. His family's there waiting for him. He could see them. He's dressed out. He's ready to go. As he's walking out the door, his family's right there. Like you could touch them practically. They're like, Chad, you got to come back. There's a stay, meaning the prosecutor was like, nope, what? this isn't happening. Right. Mm -hmm. So now he's turning around. His family's right there. Oh my God. Turning around for his life sentence. He has so to go back and do his life at the sentence. time. Thank God. Like he's out now. Okay. They, they got that overturned. But I said to Adam those two weeks before, I don't know this is coming for Adam. Right. And, and of course you had to witness this or you were I told about it. You were told we about all kind of have connections okay, with yeah. each other. It's a small little community. <laughs> and so I told him, I was like, yeah, like they told Chad, he could not come home. His family was there. I wouldn't be able to bounce back from that right. at all. So now <laughs> fast forward, Adam gets his release. I'm coming into the property. He comes in with this awkward hug and this cop who's getting off duty because it's shift change. So uh -huh. the cops are coming, COs, cops, we call them same thing. In the okay. They're coming in and out. And the guy thinks he's making a joke. He knows nothing about Chad, but he goes, Clawson, they want you back inside. And Adam says to this day, like my heart fell to my feet. I was like, fuck, it's happening. Oh my God, I'm Ugh. here. Like I already went the week before to pick yeah. him up and they told me to go home. Yeah, that's right. So those two weeks I told you was Jesus. the worst experience, right? So I'm hugging him. I'm like, well, uh, the guy's like, ah, oh, just kidding. I'm like, let's go. We're out of here. That's why. He was joking. He was oh joking. God, and he so didn't know the story. Up. He just thought he yeah. was funny. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, we're not stopping at the sign. We're just going. <laughs> Yeah, but Dang. so it wasn't, I mean, very, very different scenario, but it wasn't all it was cracked up to be in my head either. Oh my gosh, that's such a tease. I know. Wow. You've had a lot of teases. A lot of teases. So I, actually, but the teases, do the teases, teases actually make you now think, okay, things are just a tease and I just got to push past whatever this bullshit is? Um, Not really, but there are a lot of times I'll be like, is this really happening or are they going to take it away? <laughs> so maybe, yeah, maybe that's the same thing. Yeah, you're like questioning it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I have, I have a lot of questions for you too. I mean, man, like 11 years, you have able to be dedicated and like, because you probably wanted family and stuff too. So you're like, well, what, what if he like, he's in there yeah. longer than I can even produce a family. Yeah. Like, what the hell? Yeah, no, that was huge for me. And yeah. I made this, I did YouTube videos back to just kind of help oh, people in my okay. situation. And I made this video one time, probably like, maybe like six months or a year before he came home. And I was just pouring my feelings out. I was like, listen, you guys, this is a decision I made. And now I'm so far in, like, I'm not turning around, obviously, maybe not obviously, I don't know, but I'm like, these are all 
of the situations that you can find yourself in if you're with a lifer. Because there are people that go on like right out of prisoner pen pal sites and they fall madly in love with these guys. And in the moment, you're like, I could do life. I could do forever. And I'm like, think of words like forever and infinity and indefinitely. Like that's your life. Mm-hmm. You don't know if it's going to be true. And I did want children. Yeah. And I thought that's what I was like put on the planet for because that's how I was raised back in the day. Yeah. And I had to reassess like, is this actually something that... I can give up if like I'm on my deathbed and I look back and I didn't have a child because yeah. I stayed with Adam. Yeah. Is that something I'll regret? And I just yeah. had to keep reassessing. Dang. It's yeah. So cool. You guys need to, you guys need a movie. I mean, I you need know. a documentary, but you also need like a, like a lifetime drama movie. I know. And then maybe like a couple of, I was telling him he could even do like mentor series, like how to get a woman in jail. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am talking shit like, don't do it. <laughs> he gave you like a mentor for all the guys in jail. Like this, listen, I'm the Rico Suave of, of livers. <laughs> That is my new favorite title for him, by the way. <laughs> I have no idea. What what do you call guys in jail? I'm sure there's something. But he was telling me how back when he was a kid, organized crime was like glamorous. Yeah. And like very like, like it was just something that people were like, oh man. I was like, I was thinking about it. Right around the same time, probably like Ocean's Eleven was out. And like Brad right. Pitt is like, hey, like I'm Robin Banks and I'm hot. And like, look at, look at me. Like, Especially where we grew up too. He was really? in South Jersey. I was in North Jersey. So it was like hub for the mob. The Sopranos was a big thing. Like, That's yeah, insane. it was totally glamorized. That's so crazy yeah. to see, like, to actually meet someone that went through it and stuff like that. Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to start with all these questions. So your whole community, was your, like your whole support network, basically prison wives and and things like that? Yeah. Because what I did was I tried to tell people in the beginning, which obviously I got like the, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) You know, from people who like my family, my friends who deserve to say that to me. And then total strangers and I'm like well obviously like looking back that was stupid but I didn't have anybody that could understand or even answer my questions like what am I allowed to wear to visit what am I allowed to do or empathize like you know I haven't heard from him for three days is he okay is he alive are they on lockdown is he in solitary confinement you don't know and there's no way for you to tell and if you call a prison they're going to be like honey yeah (laughs) not that nice of course but we can't tell you that information right you know so so why do they tell us that then uh why do they try to glamorize prison that there's conjugal visits like is that not really a thing or only certain jails do that only certain states and i think there's only four left no federal prisoners get conjugal visits i think it's california new york maybe michigan i don't know i'm speaking wrong but if you guys know let us know we in the should comments. we should make a list and these are the only places you can commit crimes right yes and then i had a friend like you had so many people who would be like there's one friend in particular adam's friend who'd be like yeah but when your conjugal visit comes and he's like we don't get those and then like a couple weeks later like yeah but when your conjugal visits like he couldn't wrap it around his head yeah that adam couldn't have conjugal visits so like in his head he just they right. were of, cor- of course yeah that's that's crazy that you guys because that's another i mean do you guys have any producers talking to you yet do you have anyone talking to you about your book not you, about you, our book or our movie i did way back when he was inside like people wanted me on the yeah. love after lockup like all, all those prison shows do I you did. have any videos well you have all your youtube videos yeah. so you have a lot of content you could you could make a documentary out of yeah yeah but Dang. i think they need like the inside like his before like the whole yeah. story yeah you can't record or take pictures in prison, right? Not unless you have a media pass and in federal prison, usually they don't. So you guys have no photos of you meeting? Just photos. You do have a photo. Yeah, you can take photo once, like, they have to buy tickets. Oh. And then when you buy a ticket, you're allowed to go and it's like, oh my God. He Wait, are they taking it or it's on your cell phone? Uh, no, you're not allowed to bring your cell phone. Okay. So they have a person, like his job as an inmate is to be the prison photographer. We have funny oh, stories about that. This is hilarious. But it's hilarious. And then like some people get really, really into it and they do like these 
cheesy prom poses yeah of course and all this you stuff do, so, all, do the most uh, because you're like okay i can get a little awkward feel. family photos awkward family photos like little <laughs> feels and like sometimes they do they <laughs> have like these <laughs> cheesy backgrounds i mean i've never is, heard of that this that's is amazing we got to find those this will be a whole episode yeah we'll take our yeah. photos from the years oh my yep. god yeah. we have to see these photos yeah wait so adam was a photographer for a little no, while no 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 oh. so there's somebody's hired somebody to be was. your photographer okay. the inmates have to buy photo tickets at okay. the commissary okay. i don't know how much they cost we'll have to ask him yeah and then you can use them per visit yeah when you want mm-hmm and then you're allowed to take like your one or two pictures and you have to go and everybody's watching you. Yeah. And then there was this one CO who would stand behind the photographer, like really awkwardly close. It was disgusting to make sure that, you know, no one's handing off drugs or oh anything. God. I know all kinds of stuff you don't think about. Yeah. Well, Adam told me that there's like open weed and wine in, in prison. Oh yeah. More than there is. Oh, I mean, and not just like weed and wine, just, like hard throwing it back drugs. and like having a joint. Like, oh yeah. Oh, but also like hard drugs. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So they don't really get caught. They're just kind of like, eh, whatever. Well, sometimes they get caught and sometimes they're, you know, okay, let's think about it like this. Yeah. If a lot of times they would say like visitors are bringing them in mm-hmm. or they're sending them in through the mail, which happens sometimes, oh, wow. but in the amount that it's in there, right? Mm-hmm. If it's that prevalent, it's more prevalent than the street. I don't think it's just the yeah. visitors that are bringing most of it in. So could it be like CEOs that are getting paid off? Could it be, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So do the prisoners have an ability to make money in jail? And is it like a they, sig- they a all their little amount? hustles? But this is really cool. See, you should come back on with Adam because yeah. he can explain this more. But they're not allowed to have money, cash. Yeah. The only money is on their, it's called their books, but it's like, like their, their account. bank account. Yeah. But so what they use are stamps. Okay. And stamps become currency inside yeah. of prison. So he'll be like, yeah, I got a haircut today. It cost me two books, which means like two books of stamps. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So I'm like, can I just send you a whole bunch of stamps? Yeah. And then you can use He's like, no, 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 don't do that. I'll get in trouble. Oh my gosh. This is a whole like it's a whole, community and yeah. lifestyle culture. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. So I think we're running out of time. So tell me, is there anything else you want anybody to know? Tell us where we can uh, find you. Yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram, Lauren Drain Fit. Um, I'm an online personal trainer, NASA certified, registered nurse. If you want to check out my book, it's called Banished, Surviving My Years in the Westboro Baptist Church. It's a memoir and it's on Amazon. You can pretty much find it. Audio, you could do the audiobook version. Um, but yeah, if you want to get in shape with me, guys, I'm running a challenge. I always take males and females worldwide entry. We get fit. We get the bodies of our dreams. And I also give out cash prizes to the top contestants. So, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I give out three $3,000 cash each time. Wow. Yeah. I think it's people need a little motivation. Absolutely. You know, they need a little incentive to, to take on that journey. But yeah, six weeks and you'll get fit. Super fun. That's so exciting. Yeah. And Thank my, you. oh, my website. Oh, yeah. What's your uh, website? Lauren, LaurenDrain.com. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank this you, was so bro. fun. I'm so, totally oh buying my gosh, your book. We, ha- we have to go on oh my God, a I double know, date. I know. And I'm like awkwardly going to buy your book and make you sign it for me. Oh, I'm down. Okay, cool. Hell yeah. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Thank you so Thank much, you, you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Okay, bye, guys. 